Okay, excellent. All right, so last week we looked and talked the entire time of this idea of the heart. Um, it's difficult with the heart because it's used interchangeably with soul. It's used interchangeably with spirit. It's used interchangeably uh, with the, really uh, different parts of the man. Um, there is a good heart. There is an evil heart. And what fascinated me in this is that um, I went and looked, and I, then I, I, forgot, I forgot to record it, but both in the Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, which both were written by Solomon, at least I believe they were both written by Solomon, um, he has a lot to say about the heart. And that tells me that there is a whole lot more about us than just our mind. That reasoning, as good as it can be, and I'm not always sure that reasoning is as good as we think it is, but that's perhaps another discussion for another time. Um, reasoning can only take us so far. And it was really before, well, I will, I'm will going to get into this a little bit. How's that? It was before the... the the beginning of what is called the modern era, also known as modernism, uh, which really came uh, around the time of what's called the Enlightenment, kind of began in Europe, 1700s. Um, before the time of modern thinking or modernism, which values reason, which values certainty, which values the scientific method of inquiry, um, people were governed in their thinking, decision-making, will, right? More so by their hearts than trying to reason things out. And incidentally, modernism attempted to kick God out of the picture, which I find fascinating. If you read a lot of modernistic philosophical writings, they want to deny the existence of God. And um, that's still kind of the prevalent cultural thinking uh, that we deal with today. That, that it's, it's called a worldview. The thing about a worldview is that it's often like air. We need it to survive but we're never, we're rarely cognizant of it. Of course, we're thinking about it right now because I just mentioned it. But, but it's really the, the, the cultural worldview is like the air that you breathe. Um, it's, it's, that would be a different worldview. Yes, yes. And because we, we all grew up in one. We all grew up in one. Um, we, that's why I keep saying everybody has a philosophy and everybody has a theology. We really all grew up with both, even if your theology was atheism. It's still a theology. Um, it's just an anti-God theology. But theology proper is basically the study of God, the study of divine being. Um, 
And what I, I always find so fascinating about atheism is that it, it's almost, really it's dependent upon a God that they believe does not exist. Um, which I find fascinating. Um, right. Because it, it's, it's a backlash against what was once the prevailing worldview that really modernism carried with it, and that is the fact that, uh, of deism. If you've read any literature written by some of the founding fathers, uh, they were deist. Um, they weren't evangelical Christians, and I don't... They use Christian language, but their theology was not like ours. I mean, even, this even goes back to uh, uh, Hobbes, um, who wrote right after, he wrote the book Leviathan right after the, the English Revolution, excuse me, the English Civil War in the 1700s, well, actually 1600s, 17th century. He uses a lot of Christianese in his writings, but he, he wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. That's pretty obvious by what he did write, but he just uses a lot of Christianese because that was a part of the culture. Uh, so they, prior to modernism, they thought more with the heart than they did with the mind. And there was a shift uh, in that. No, other way around. Other way around. When they began to rely, now is reasoning good? Yes, reasoning's good, okay. But you have to incorporate more than just, how do I say this? You have to incorporate, I believe, my opinion. You have to incorporate more of your, uh, uh, more than just, life is more than just a mathematical equation. I'm using that as an example to make your decisions. That's what I'm saying should happen. Uh, modernism attempted to separate that. Yeah. And just for you to think within reasoning uh, and think use, using reason. Now, if I haven't muddied the waters already yet for you, Wesleyan quadrilateral, how they interpreted Scripture. Quad is four, right? Scripture, they interpreted Scripture based on experience, church tradition, and reasoning. Scripture, tradition, experience, reasoning. And, and Wesley came around, what, 1700s as well. Um, so he understand, understood that all three of those were important to help us interpret and discern Scripture. Um, and so that's what we have here where Solomon says, I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it I could declare it all. And then he goes on, and it's, it's, it's almost, uh, some of, you know, it feels very defeating, what he says here. That the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Okay, that's not the defeating part. That's where he starts. And then goes, people know neither love nor hatred by anything that they see before them. What he's saying is you can't always trust experience. That's what he's saying. Is that true? I think, I think that is true. 
that we can't, I mean, at times I think we can, but I think at times it's very difficult for us to trust experience. Um, people know neither love nor hatred by anything that they see before them. All things come alike to all. In other words, so now he's going to tap into this idea of the commonality of all of humanity. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean. To him who sacrifices, to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. This is an evil. In all that happens under the sun, keep that in mind. He's talking about all that happens under the sun. Uh, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts. Now what is that one thing that he's talking about? Because Tim read it in, uh, in the two verses that he read. What is the one thing that happens to all? He's talking about death. That's what he's, he's, but he, he's, he, he's, he's, um, he's writing quite lyrically. You could even say poetically. And he, he's, he's setting you up for it. He's not just, just kind of just dropping the, it's not a tech manual, remember? This is wisdom literature, so it's, it's to be read like a fine piece of literature rather than the tech manual of how to change the points in your 57 Chevy. Um, had the, I'd love a 57 Chevy, but anyway, I'd put, I'd put a, first thing I think I would do is I would put automatic, or um, a different ignition. What is it called? Anyway. Um, that doesn't matter. So he, but he's setting us up. But notice this one thing, verse 3, this one thing that is evil is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts, there it is again, plural, of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts, there it is again, while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So you have... The clean and the unclean here. He mentions that in verse 2. Interestingly enough, he also gives us a parallel to that. I'm looking for it. Um, Harvey read it in verse 4. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. A dog in Hebrew thinking could be equivalent to a Gentile. And the lion was a, they may or may not have understood it, uh, where, where does the lion, what does, who does the lion eventually point to? Given to us in the book of Revelation. Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and so there's, there's, and he's tying this in with being joined to the living. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. Now, is he talking just about life under the sun? I don't think so, but that's how I'm reading it. I think he's talking about being tied with the living, being tied with the living God. And so... He, he, he's not saying it, saying it like a 21st century um, modern person. 
But nonetheless, I think he's, he's painting us a, a, a lyrical, poetic picture of, yes, life under the sun, which refers to life where? What's that, Jeff? You said on earth? That's what I thought. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> life under the sun is life on earth, right? Unless it's nighttime or you're in a building. Now, well, the lights, okay. Um, but he, he's, so he's painting us a, a, a picture of, of there is more here to comprehend and understand than what he's saying and writing. Does that make sense? How are, you, how are you receiving this so far? Well, thank you for that. But there is always extra. I tell you, this is really a hard, this is, this is really hard literature to teach. But, you know, it's... What was the intent of the original author? And what I mean by the original author, who am I talking about? I'm not talking about Solomon. I'm talking about God. Because is this inspired scripture? So, and here's, here's, you know, I was talking with a friend. Matthew 13, we're not going to take the time to turn there this morning. But it's not morning, so we won't take the time particularly to turn there. We won't take the time to turn there this evening. But what is interesting about Matthew 13 is that you have the parables that are given. There's seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. The first one is explained. Jesus explains in Matthew, in the text, what that parable means. That helps us to understand some of the other ones. Helps us to understand it. But a few of them were given, like the Pearl of Great Price, not referring to the Mormon book, by the way. We had a discussion on Mormonism earlier. But there is, in Matthew 13, one of the parables is the Pearl of Great Price, which when the merchant, when, the, when someone hid the pearl in the field, the uh, merchant came along and purchased the field, not because he wanted the field, but because he wanted the pearl hidden in it. To me, it's a fascinating parable. What in the world does that mean? And we were talking about this, and I said, you know, I, I think part of the reason why the Lord did not give us full-on expositional descriptions of what these parables meant because they mean more than one thing. I think they do. And I think the Jews understood that. The Jews who really thought with the heart, they really did. Now, they thought with the brain when it came to Torah. But even then, they had numerous discussions about what Torah actually meant. Because, and we don't talk, I, I talk about it more than probably most, I don't know, I won't say probably most, but I, I think I talk about it more than some of the guys who teach. And part of it is because I, 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 uh, I've read Messianic Judaism. I thought that was pretty good. Now, you get a gold star. I thought that was pretty good. Now, Harv, I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that 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 is it. 
right? But but I, I thought you're you're working with it, right? And I I I I don't take issue with anything you said. I guess you know I'll, I'll go back and listen. No, I'm kidding. But uh, but I I think again this is what this literature is how it's written, and I think I think there's this idea. Follow my thinking on this. All right. What is the best interpretation of Scripture? Of any of any passage that we're in, uh, right now we're in Ecclesiastes nine. What is the best interpretation of Scripture? I'll give you my thought on a second. Anyway, what, anybody have any thoughts on that? I, yeah, yeah, would be Scripture which you just did, by the way. I mean, because you, you went, you went, how do I say that? I'm, a, I, I'm teasing you on this. You went New Testament on us. Exactly. And the thing is, is you didn't interpret this in a void. In other words, you didn't just interpret it right there. And the problem is that some people interpret this in a void. Uh, and, and they, they uh, part of wisdom literature is to teach you, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> part of wisdom literature is to teach you wisdom, and you don't get it on a download. Yeah, experience, tradition, reason. Yes, yes. No. So, let's go back to verse 1 for fun, just for fun. And it's interesting, Jeff, because I don't always get something new out of it every time I read it. But I just, I have to try to stay open. Because the, the thing is, um, when we read the Bible, we want to be open to receive, I think, for the purpose of obedience. And we want to be open for us to be responsive to God, whether he does something with that or not. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Um, but so in chapter 9, verse 1, I'm considering all this in my heart so that I could declare it all that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. Notice he did not include all the people. He included the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. Excuse me. The righteous and the wise and their works. What is their works? Actions. Their actions, essentially. So what is that, what is that referring to? Referring to God's sovereignty, isn't it? 
And this idea of the, the best that I, I could understand this and kind of digging through this, this, this phrase about being in the hands of God is, is really a, a reference to, um, to God's sovereignty and God's providential, that's a nice word, isn't it? His providential care and, and being under his care. Um, and yet, okay, so don't forget that thought. Under God's care, God is sovereign, all right? But then what is he saying when he says in verse 2, all things come alike to all? Events happen to the righteous, the wicked, the good, the clean, the unclean. He who sacrifices, he who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. Does it sound like he's contradicting himself from verse 1 into verse 2? Isn't there a little bit of a paradox there? I think there's at least a paradox there. I know he's not contradicting himself, but on the surface, it sounds that way, doesn't it, Jeff? So in the book of James, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. I think in a roundabout way that's possible, and essentially what James is talking about is what we described or identify, a, a title we put on is God's common grace. Grace to the just and the unjust alike. Rain falling, right? I think you are to a degree. I think you know it from, uh, again, you've got to go outside the passage, I think, to answer that question. You're asking good questions, but you have, how do I know it from, do we have a sense of discernment from the Holy Spirit? Now, and that's even a tricky question which doesn't always ring well with me because I've had people tell me that God told them. You've had, I'm sure we've all had this. God has told me, and, 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 is, is, and I've had times that where God has said to me, I didn't tell him that, Mike. Who do you want to believe, the guy who told me God told me, or do you want to believe what I just said? Yeah, I, well, maybe I'm wrong. You know, and so, so first of all, in this heart, it's a call to humility because we, we, we don't necessarily always know what we think we know. You know, and, and I think of, of Joseph here. We, we talked about Joseph a chapter or two back. Joseph, remember, and I, I you know, at the end after his father uh, had passed away, Jacob, who was Israel, passed away, and the brothers are afraid that Joseph is finally going to get even, all right? They were worried that he was going to get even. Why? Because they sold him into slavery many years before, and he ended up in Egypt, and God raised him up, and he became the second in command in the nation of Egypt, and he saved the nation of Egypt because of the seven years of famine that he was told about in a Pharaoh was told about in a dream, and Joseph interpreted. You follow me on this one, um, everybody? Tim, sort of follow me on this one? 
I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not. Okay, Joseph gets sold into slavery. He ends up in prison. Pharaoh has this dream that scares the daylights out of him. And one of his, I think it was his butler, uh, might, might have been the baker, one of his servants, says there's a guy in prison that knows how to interpret dreams. They bring Joseph out. He interprets the dream that Joseph had. And the dream essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this briefly, but essentially the dream tells Joseph that there's going to be seven years of famine, excuse me, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the gathering of all the food and storing up all the food of the seven years of plenty. And as they go into the seven years of famine, his family who sold him into slavery runs out of food. So they go to Egypt to buy food. Uh, eventually, Joseph, they don't recognize him, right? Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. The whole family moves to Egypt, which, which was, uh, was prophesied, essentially, but it was not a great idea. The whole family moves to Egypt. Eventually, the patriarch of the family, who was Jacob, passes away, and those ten brothers are afraid that Joseph is now going to get even. So Joseph says to the ten brothers, okay, you're, we're, we're enough of the, to get the picture. What you did, you meant for evil, selling me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's in the book of Genesis, which fascinates me because it, it goes back to what you were saying. We don't always know. You know, and, and some of the things that God has allowed in my life to, that, that, that it just felt like, you must really hate me. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I've thought that. You must really dislike me. Matter of fact, I had a friend of mine who, he was a pastor, and he went through incident after incident after incident throughout his life, and he, was, he wrote a book about it, and he titled it, Now Never Got Published, and it's probably a good thing it didn't, but he wrote a book about it, and the subtitle was, there's just something about you that pisses me off. <laughs> That's how we felt. And, you know, he has one of those stories that if, if, if I didn't know him and had lived through some of that with him, I th I, you would have think he was just lying. But it was, it was truthful. But nonetheless, sometimes we think that, and, and so we... Love and hate, those are relative terms, particularly in the Old Testament, where, where one of the prophets say, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. It's more of a comparison uh, use of those two words. If Follow me on that, Harv? Like, I, I, uh, I love pizza unless you put, but I hate it if you put Brussels sprouts on it, right? That, the only thing, that too. Um, and so... Um, we don't always know what really is good for us. And yet, we're staring down the barrel of the, that hallway of life, right? Our beginning, our end, whatever that happen, whenever that happens to be. And, and Solomon is looking at this, and he's saying, well, everything under the sun 
it's all going to come for naught. It's all going to become for naught, you know, and um, the thing about God's sovereignty here, remember that that kind of over, that's the almost like the umbrella here. The thing about God's sovereignty is, is I'm not so sure that we really can make a whole lot of sense of it. Now, there are a lot of people who would disagree with me on that one. Um, but the more I think about these things, the more I think it, it, it's really beyond our grasp. And it's, it's uh, to me, it's really beyond my full understanding. I don't know about you. What? Yeah. And, and so there's a paradox to it. Um. Because I think it was David, and I, I don't know how many times have I referred to this now. Um, I'm just going to look it up real, real fast. It's Psalm 73 that asked the question, why, why do evil people prosper? And... and uh, why do, why do they do well? And, of course, he says, I eventually go into the sanctuary of God, and I see their end. I see what will finally happen. No, it's not a psalm of David. It's a psalm of Asaph. Okay, that's what I was just curious to look at. But, but he's, he's wrestling with this idea of why is it that evil people do well, and why is it good people suffer? Job is all about that. And Job, you know, Job suffered immensely, right? Right. He lost his kids. He lost his cattle. He lost all his crops. He lost everything he had except for his wife that he really wanted to lose, you know. Um, and, and so he has three friends that come along and try to comfort him, and they basically are saying to him, Job, you sinned. And if you would just get right with God, if you just confess your sin, God will forgive you. Because he also had physical boils all over his body. He was in bad shape. And they're like, well, Job, you've sinned. And they saw suffering as a sign of God's displeasure on him. And there are people I know that see suffering as a sign of God's displeasure on us. But it doesn't, that's not necessarily true. Uh, the fact that a righteous person suffers doesn't prove anything. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, we can suffer because we're being chastised by God, Hebrews 12. We can suffer as a means of even glorifying God, John 9. Uh, we, we can suffer because of our sin or kind of like now we get put on like a probation, um, Habakkuk 4 talks about this, and even the Exodus, when they roamed through the desert for 40 years, it was because of their unbelief. They were not allowed to enter in. Um, and sometimes suffering is just a, as a means to reveal to us. Suffering can also be a sacrifice, where Jesus did that. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 and 25 talks about this. But, but the thing is, the sovereignty of God, while the Bible, I think it's consistently declares it, 
I, I think it's there, that God is sovereign, um, which means he's in control over everything. The problem is, is that we want a sovereignty of self equal to the sovereignty of God. And you, the pro, when people are suffering, this is not the time to go there. Why did God allow this? What they are essentially saying is they want a sovereignty of self equal to a sovereignty of God. Now, in the midst of their suffering, that's really bad timing to bring that up. All right, so don't, so here's the thing, though, in that, and I want to I move on from this, okay, because we're almost out of time. God permitted Satan. There is no, he could have not have permitted him. Um, remember what I said about causation and the first mover, the prime mover, the, the, the first cause of all causes, and that's God. And, and, but the thing about his sovereignty, and this is the point that I really want to make, make because I think this takes us beyond that conversation between Satan and God in the first part of the book of Job. And, and that is, um, I think it's beyond really our complete understanding of his sovereignty. Um, and I, I think once we really fully understand it, then I think we're at a point that we, or once we believe we fully understand it, I think it's evidence anymore that we just flat out don't. And there are certain things that, and in this, in this passage, I mean, We know that the, uh, for the living know that when they die that the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. Their memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything under the sun, which refers to life here on earth. It's important to understand that. Read it in the context, because I've had people read this to me. It's, it's, uh, uh, Solomon doesn't believe in the afterlife. He's not saying that at all. But what he is doing is saying that, that once we die, he's not saying that that's it, but he's saying that is it as far as life under the sun. And so, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. All right? Uh, for God has accepted your works all right, the works that we referred to back in verse 1, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. See how this is really tying together a whole lot more than a lot of people. You've got, you got to read it carefully, and you've got to keep kind of going back. Um, drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has ex already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. And let your head lack oil. You brought up a really good thing about the garment and the oil. Let me expand upon it. In the Bible. You see this in the book of Revelation. You see this in other passages as well. And you will see this even in some of the Old Testament prophets. White garments are a symbol of righteousness. 
And that's, we see that, again, we see that revelation early in the book, chapter 2 or 3, and at the end of the book as well. White garments are a sign of our righteousness in Christ. And oil, let not your head lack no oil. You, you brought out the idea of anointing your head with the oil, which was a, a good observation because <clears throat> that, that was definitely the culture there. But oil is also a representation of whom? The Holy Spirit. And so let your head be uh, never to lack the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Also, your bread, bread, manna, bread. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Bread, the word of God. Uh, and wine, drink your wine with a merry heart. Wine is a symbol of joy. Wine can also be a symbol of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine. A symbol of joy, a symbol of gladness. There's a big difference between, and, and I, th I think the, the physical goes in there because there's a big difference between drinking your wine with a merry heart and getting something-faced drunk. <laughs> and you all know what I mean. But, it, you know, wine is that symbol of joy. We see it all throughout the Psalms and, and other passages as well. And so he starts in verse 1 by talking to the righteous. And you, you hit this. You got it well, Harv. You, you saw what he was talking about to unrighteous people. But then he, he, he uh, in 7 and 8, he caps it off by talking to the righteous again. Because to the Christian believer, we have a living hope, not a dead hope. We have a living hope and not a dead hope. But this does imply to us also that at our death, our fate sealed. At least it implies that. 